Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 9. John chapter 9, continuing the themes of spiritual blindness and light and dark. John places Jesus' sixth sign or miracle right here in chapter 9. This is not the, the sixth miracle that Jesus has done. Just remember John is selective about the miracles that he has chosen to demonstrate Jesus as the Son of God. But this sixth miracle is the healing of a man born blind. In John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus had declared himself. Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. In this passage, Jesus will demonstrate how he is the light of life, and he'll do it in a dramatic way. John has not recorded Jesus as having healed anyone specifically since chapter 5, when he healed a lame man. The two accounts actually closely parallel one another. Consider the settings. The lame man, back in chapter 5, was healed by the pool of Bethesda. The blind man here in chapter 9 will be healed at the pool of Siloam. Circumstances are, are similar. The man in chapter 5 has been lame, unable to walk for 38 years, a long time. The man in chapter 9 has been blind since birth. And Jesus' methods are unique in both accounts. Jesus asked the lame man in chapter 5 if he wanted to be healed. The man's answer reveals that he does expect healing to come, but from washing in the pool, because he believed in some sort of magical properties of the water, that there was a myth that the angel would stir up the water and healing could come from the pers- to the per- first person who entered that pool. But instead, Jesus just tells the man to walk, and he's healed. Here, with the blind man, Jesus makes mud with the saliva, he puts it on his eyes, and then he tells him to go wash in the pool. The timing, the time is similar. Both healings occur on the Sabbath. But above all these similarities, there's one giant contrast, and that is the outcome. If you remember, after the lame man had been healed of a 38-year malady, He went to the authorities and reported Jesus to them. He remains loyal to them and not to Jesus and ultimately does not believe in Jesus. The blind man defends Jesus' actions to the authorities and ends up remaining loyal to Christ and he becomes a believer. Now, when you look at these two accounts, you would actually think that the outcomes would be switched, right? That the layman would actually end up believing in the power of Jesus and not the pool. Because he wasn't sent to the pool. Jesus just told him to walk. And here with the blind man, you would think that maybe he would end up believing in the power of the pool. Because Jesus tells him to go wash in the pool and then he's healed. But no, the outcome is different. The lame man doesn't believe, but the blind man does. Why the drastically different outcomes? What is John trying to show us here? Well, in the end, this is a message of salvation. There is no one-size-fits-all, cookie-cutter way to salvation. Salvation is unique to each and every one of us. And John has a particular purpose for placing this here when he has been speaking about spiritual blindness. In fact, we're going to see over the next few weeks there is an incident here, and that is the healing, which we'll look at in detail today. But then there will be an investigation 
by the Pharisees, which we will look at next week. And finally, there will be an interpretation of those events, which will conclude this section of the following week. So let's begin by looking at this passage. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 of John chapter 9. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word today and to see clearly today. Lord, as the blind man, blind since birth, was given sight on that miraculous day, we pray that you would give us spiritual sight and spiritual insight to see the deep and marvelous truths of what you want us to learn and to apply to our lives today. Would you do that for us? Give us your Holy Spirit that might illuminate truth to us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just begin by looking at the setting. Look at verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by. Now, this is a general reference, so it's really difficult to determine the precise time and location. I've been very careful to sort of keep the timeline going and uh, inform you as to uh, what events or major events would have elapsed according to the other Gospels. But he must still be in Jerusalem, because as you will see, he will instruct the blind man to wash in the pool of Siloam. But this is not as really that important compared to what comes next. He says, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now, blindness was very common in the ancient world. And many uncared for blind were reduced to begging. And Jerusalem, especially the temple area, were prime locations for beggars because they would be more likely to receive alms from the people and the crowds in Jerusalem, and particularly around the temple. Now, we don't know how Jesus knew this man was blind from birth, but just, just recall his encounter with the lame man back in chapter 5. Look at verses 5 and 6. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? See, Jesus sovereignly chose that man out of all the others that were in that region, knowing his condition, in order to demonstrate some things. And I think he does the same thing uh, here. Jesus wants to demonstrate very specific things. Firstly, that he is the Messiah. 
Isaiah 42, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah says this, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. That is a messianic passage, a a messianic prophecy speaks of the Messiah to come, that he would literally open blind eyes. And Jesus does that to demonstrate that he is the Messiah. But I think there's a deeper, deeper spiritual truth here, because this man is blind from birth. And what John has been doing is contrasting spiritual blindness, and what he's doing here is contrasting that with the physical sight that is given to this man. But spiritually blind people, we are blind from birth. We were not born and then somewhere along the road commit some sort of terrible atrocity and then become spiritually blind. No, we're blind from the very beginning. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that our minds, the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. We're blinded so that we can't see the light. We can't see the glory of Christ. That is a deep truth here as well. But thirdly, and I think most importantly, Jesus does this to demonstrate that he's deity. Turn back to Mark chapter 2 real quick. Go to the Gospel of Mark. And I just want to demonstrate by by looking at another parable. You're familiar with this as you turn there. Uh, where uh, Jesus is in a house and he's teaching and many people are crowding around there and, and, and a group of four men are bringing a, a, a paralytic uh, to see Jesus. And they can't get to him, so they dig a hole in the roof and they lower him down to Jesus. You recall that. And this is what Jesus says in verse 5 of Mark chapter 2. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately, when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. The point is, is very clear. He says, yeah, that's, that's true. What's an easier thing to say? It's pretty easy for me just to say, son, your sins are forgiven you. You can't, you can't prove that, right? There's no way to prove that his sins have indeed been forgiven. He said, no, you're right about that. It's a, it's a more difficult thing than to say, uh, rise, take up your bed, and walk, isn't it? So that I can prove that the first is true, I'll do the second. I'll do the harder thing. Rise. Take up your bed and walk. The man walks, proving thus that he has also been forgiven of his sins. So he's deity because only God can forgive sins. That's the point in this passage as well in John chapter 9. John wants to prove that he is deity, and Jesus is proving that through this miracle. Look at verse 2. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Now, this question by his disciples brings up a common contemporary Jewish belief. And that's that physical suffering is the direct result of sin. But what's interesting is they say, who sinned? This man? Now, that they thought that the man could have sinned 
in order to bring about this congenital condition which he has had from birth, <laughs> reveals another contemporary Jewish belief, and that's this. Children can sin in the womb. And you add to that the belief of the Hellenistic Jews, those Jews that have been influenced by Greek philosophy, who believed in the soul's pre-existence. They believed then that people could be punished in this life for sins committed in a previous life. So they, who, who sinned? Was it this man? Did he sin in the womb? Is he paying for the sins of a, of a previous life? Who, who sinned? Or, or is it his parents that he was born blind? Now, it seems pretty unfair that a child would be blind from birth because of the sins of their parents. What does the Bible teach about this? I do want to take a few moments to just highlight some things because this can be uh, tricky. Let's take a look at a couple things. Firstly, suffering in general is a result of sin in general. It's a result of the fall. We live in a cursed, fallen world full of death, pain, disease, destruction. That's just the result of the fall. It's the result of sin and God's curse upon creation because of rebellion. But it's also true that specific illnesses can be the direct consequences of sin. Remember Jesus' words to that lame man back in chapter 5, the man he healed at the pool of Bethesda? Remember he healed him. The man went away, not knowing really who healed him. Jesus goes and finds him later in verse 14, says to him, after Jesus found him in the temple, he said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus tells him and tells us that that malady of 38 years is a result of sin. And he offers him the opportunity to repent unless something worse would come upon him. The worst obviously being a total destruction, separation from God. There are several examples of this in scripture. I'll just give you one. Remember Miriam in the Old Testament. She was struck with leprosy because she rebelled against Moses. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 10 when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became a leprous as white as snow. And then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. And that was a direct result of her sin. She rebelled against Moses and instantly became a leper. And remember, the Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, well, verses 29 and 30, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. So he tells us right there that many do get illnesses, specific sicknesses, and some have even died because of their sin. A third point, it is, it is also tragically true that children are forced to suffer the natural consequences, the natural consequences of their parents' sinful choices. Right? I mean, just think of, of pregnant women. Think of the negative effects of drinking and smoking and substance abuse during pregnancy. The children can be born with all kinds of things because of the sinful choices of the parents. But I think what the disciples may be thinking about here are certain, certain Old Testament passages where it seems that God is promising punishment on the children their parents' sins. And I want to take you to a couple of them. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. 
Perhaps you've read this, or perhaps you've left this passage really feeling confused. I'd like to enlighten you a bit today. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, it says this, You shall not bow down to them, speaking of false gods, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. It's reiterated later in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, how, do you, how are we to understand these passages? Well, I think we have to understand them in a national sense, the nation of Israel. Obviously, the corrupting effect of a wicked generation can seep into subsequent generations. We live in that generation now. Everyone speaks so much about the Welsh uh, revivals, right? But that generation has passed. A wicked generation came in after them, and that wickedness has seeped into the generation into which we now find ourselves. This happened to the Hebrew children of the Exodus. They suffered through 40 years of wilderness wanderings because of the sins of their parents. Same with those who suffered in captivity in Assyria and Babylon. It was the societal and national wickedness of the generations that brought them all the consequences of their wickedness. But hear me when I tell you this. Scripture nowhere teaches that a child will be punished for the sins of his own parents. Not in the way the disciples were asking here. In Deuteronomy 24, 16, we're told this, Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. Death is a penalty for sin, a punishment for sin. And God will not punish the children for their father's sin or the father for the child's sin. Everyone is punished for their own sin. So I hope that clears that up. But look how Jesus answers the question, and it gives some light here as well. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. So his answer exposes their error. It wasn't about sin. I've been reading through the book of Job. Don't you love Job? Don't you love his friends? <laughs> Don't really know how they can be called his friends, but his friend, Eliphaz, has this wonderful encouragement to Job during his suffering. Remember now, Whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the upright ever caught off? <laughs> right? You're obviously not innocent, Job. You're obviously not upright. God never has done that to, to anyone. And that's why Job says, Miserable comforters are you all. <laughs> They're not helpful. They're not comforting to him. But what's great about reading Job is that you will later see that God rebukes those friends for the error of their thinking. They were not right about the character of God. In Job 42, verse 7, And so it was, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So the mindset with the disciples here is clear. Sin manifests itself on the outside in some way through tragedy, 
sickness or, or, or disease. That's a result of sin. But th- see, these are the thoughts of, of people who are spiritually blind. I know the disciples are the initial ones to ask, but it just shows that the thinking was wrong in that time. And Jesus, just to get one last illustration, illustrates this so beautifully in this parable in Luke chapter 13. Just turn there really briefly. Luke chapter 13. To answer the question of sin and suffering, Jesus does have an answer. Here's what he says in this this, uh, chapter 13. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Just because we see uh, storms and hurricanes and tsunamis hitting certain people and nations, we cannot sort of go, oh, God must be judging those wicked, evil people. God says, no, you repent. You worry about yourself because if you don't repent, oh, a worse thing is going to happen to you. And Jesus here says, it's, it's not sin. It's not this man and it's not the sin of the parents. So why was this man born blind? Ah, here is an amazing response. Look at the second half of verse 3. But that the works of God should be revealed in him. But that the works of God should be revealed in him. What is Jesus saying here? What is the truth of the blindness? The truth here was very much like that truth of Job. The truth of Job that Job really never knew or understood. In Job chapter 1 and 2, right? We see that God doesn't cause the destruction and the harm and the pain that comes upon Job, but he allows it. Satan enters there, right? Enters his throne room and, and God says, where you been? Well, I've been roaming around looking for someone to devour. He says, have you looked at Job? He's a blameless man. And Satan's response was, he only, you know, loves you and honors you because you bless him. You strike him, take his stuff away. Then we'll see who's right. We'll see how blameless he is. And God says, you you have my permission. He allows him to do that. And it's a similar thing here. God allows sin to dwell in the earth because we chose it. And people are born blind. That just happens. But listen to the explanation from F.F. Bruce. I, I love this. He says this about this passage or what Jesus says. He says this, This does not mean that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that, after many years, his glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think so would again be an aspersion on the character of God. It does mean that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness so that, when the child grew to manhood, he might, by recovering his sight, See the glory of God in the face of Christ and others seeing this work of God might turn to the true light of the word. God sovereignly chose to use this man's affliction, which is a result of just natural sin and the fall, for his own glory. That's what's happening here. So look at verse 4. 
Jesus continues. He says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Now, I haven't really focused on this word must. Uh, it's the word die, and it means a necessity. Um, it's just this little Greek word. But it's been used 10 times in John's gospel to declare the necessity of certain things. Theologians refer to this word in the Gospel of John as divine necessity. Listen how it's been used so far. Think back to John chapter 3 and Jesus' Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus. He has told him that, um, you know, unless he's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then in verse 7, he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. See, there it is. You must be born again. Number one, it is a divine necessity that people be born again, or if you remember from that passage, born from above. You need a second birth, a birth from above. Later in that passage, he says this in verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It's also a divine necessity that Christ be crucified, that he be lifted up on the cross, because through that will come forgiveness of sins and salvation. Later in that same chapter, verse 30 of chapter 3, someone else uses the word. It's not Jesus this time, but it's John the Baptist. You might recall this. He says this, He must increase, but I must decrease. There it is again. The divine necessity of Jesus' ministry is that he replace John in importance, that the ministry of Jesus increase, but the ministry of John decrease. And that's the same for us, right? It's not about us and our ministry. It must all, must all be about Jesus. He must increase. In John chapter 4, verse 4, it says this, but he needed to go through Samaria. He needed to is the word must it was a divine necessity to go through Samaria. If you remember from that passage, the Jews did not go through Samaria. There were other ways to go to Jerusalem and back and forth between Galilee. They, they would go around it. But this passage says that he had a divine necessity to go through Samaria, not because there was no other way, but because he had divine appointment, a divine appointment with a woman at the well. And then in John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so these are the divine necessities uh, of John thus far. And then we come here. And the word is describing Jesus' active fulfillment of the mission of his Father. In fact, in this verse, verse 4, the oldest manuscripts actually read, we must work the works of him who sent me. Not just I must work the works of him. We must. And that includes the disciples and, by extension, all believers. What works, then? What, what works? When? Well, he says, while it is day. While it is day. So what are we to do? Well, we're to do the will of the Father, just like Jesus. That was the divine necessity. We're to do what the Father has given us to do. Listen, if you're here on earth and you are a believer and you don't know what the Father has given you to do, read your Bibles. If you don't know what you're here to do, you're not reading. We have to do the works of the Father. We have to do it while it is day. What does that mean? Well, it conveys a sense of urgency, right? It doesn't stay daylight forever. In fact, here in Wales, it's, it's not around very long in the day at all. It's, it's winter. It's quite dark. 
but it conveys a sense of urgency because it refers to the time that we are allotted to do his will. And for the disciples in the immediate context and for Jesus, that is only a few months away because Jesus is going to be crucified. And then, he says in verse 4, the night is coming when no one can work. So the night signifies the limit set to do God's work. That's when it, it, it ends. And Jesus, the light, will be taken away from the disciples in death. And darkness, if you recall, will literally come at his death, won't it? I mean, the sun will be darkened. There will be darkness at his death. But then he says, and then no one can work. Well, what does he mean by that? How can we, we not work? Well, in the immediate context, the disciples would be done working because they will be in fear and they will be in hiding. In Matthew 26, verse 56, we're told this, but all this was done to the, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. There was no work being done because his death was coming. But Jesus will later say to his disciples right here in this gospel, in John chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus said to them, a little while longer, the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. So Jesus would be with them for a little while longer, continue to walk with him while it's light, because for them, darkness was coming. And it did come, and they did cease to work. They did not work. In fact, they would not work until the Helper, the Holy Spirit, would come on the day of Pentecost. And work began again. And guess what? It continues today. We work. It is day for us. We work while it's day because night is coming. We have a limited time to do his work. We must do the works of the Father while it is day. And Jesus continues and says, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In verse 5. While Jesus was in the world, he was the light of the world. That light shone most clearly during his earthly ministry. Now, he didn't cease to be that light at his death because the light is carried on through his disciples and by extension, through us. Paul tells us this in Philippians 2.15 that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We carry on the light of Jesus in this world. And what Jesus said to his disciples, he says to us, serve God. Serve him with a sense of urgency. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 16, redeeming the time because the days are evil. We need to serve him and serve him urgently. So this is the setting. The healing hasn't even happened yet. It comes next in the next section, verse 6. Verse 6. When he had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now here, a parable is played out for us. This, this earthly story has a heavenly reality, right? The spiritual light of the world is about to give physical light to a man who's lived his entire life in darkness. That's incredible. And Jesus has used his spit to heal before, right? In Mark 7.33, he actually healed a deaf and mute man with his spit. In Mark 8.23, he healed a blind man with his spit. If I, if I ever get some kind of thing in my eye and I ever have something, you know, don't, don't try this with me. I'm, I'm good. I'll, I'll use something else. I really don't want your spit on my eye. I'll be, I'll be fine. But here Jesus chooses to use his spit to make clay 
and why he chose to make clay from his spit is not stated. But you know what the early church fathers saw? They saw a parallel here. They saw a parallel with the creation account in Genesis 2-7, right? The Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground, literally formed him from that ground. And what they saw here was that the making of clay really symbolized the fashioning of two new eyes. That Jesus was actually fashioning new eyeballs for this man. And so he gets this clay, he puts it together, he puts it on the man's existing eyes, and in verse 7 says this, he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, a few things about this pool. If you think back to King Hezekiah, King Hezekiah feared an Assyrian invasion. And so he had constructed a tunnel from the Gihon Spring to the pool of Siloam in the, in the walls of Jerusalem to ensure that their water supply would stay consistent if they were to be invaded. And this, this pool has actually been recently located. Now, if you were to go to Jerusalem, I got a couple pictures here. They will take you to uh, this pool of Siloam. This is the traditional pool of Siloam. If you look at it, it's not very big. Right, it's a really, a really small area. You can't really imagine uh, tons of blind and, and lame and, and poor beggars in, you know, shoved around this, uh, this area where they would have been if it were hot, not to mention all the other people. But this is the, they, were, they, were, they would take you here because the Hezekiah's Tunnel, sort of at the end of the picture there, ends there and you come out into the Pool of Siloam. Um, and that's just been the traditional site. They've had that for, for many, many years. But in 2004... Um, these steps were discovered. See this picture? There's just a few steps kind of leading uh, down uh, the wall here. Now, on the right side is a, a property owned by the Greek Orthodox Church, and on the left side is a retaining wall and a drainage thing. And so this is as far as they could go. And you can imagine all the permits and things they had to do to be able to continue to excavate. Um, and they were able to do so in 2006. This is how much they had uncovered. Look at that. Now you can begin to see how... Uh, uh, large the area is. Now, I went to Israel in 2008, and if you were to go today, this is what you will see. This, this, these are the steps going down to the Pool of Siloam. Now you can envision crowds of people, um, blind and beggars all around, because this is the real place. They they uncovered this, and they're uncovering things all the time in Israel. It's amazing. Um, but what we have here is a, a, a genuine uh, place <laughs> discovered archaeologically, that lines up with Scripture. It's the Pool of Siloam. And, and John here, in one of his many asides, tells us that the pool means sent. Now, this pool was also where the high priest would draw water for the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you remember how we talked about that? Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was taking place when Jesus was there, and they did the uh, sort of the lightning ceremony, but they also did the water drawing. This is where he would get the water. And it symbolized the blessings of God to the nation of Israel, his provision for them. But here, what Jesus is doing, it symbolizes God's ultimate blessing to the nation, his ultimate provision, Jesus the Messiah, the one sent from God. And this is so, so important, this word sent. It's not a coincidence. The pool is called sent. And Jesus has consistently described himself as the one who has been sent from God. So I'm just going to do this. You've got to get comfortable because I've just, I've just 
listed here everywhere that Jesus has talked about being the sent one. And I'm just going to start reading way back in chapter 4, starting there. Jesus said to them in chapter 4, verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Then you go to John chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. I can of myself do nothing as I hear. I judge, and my righteous uh, sorry, judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. That's verse 30. Then you go to 36 to 38. But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Then you go to John chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Verse 38, all the way to 40. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me. That of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Verse 57, as a living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Then you're in John chapter 7, verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, my doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Verse 28 to 29, then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, you both know me, and you know where I am from. I'm not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Verse 33, then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. And then you're all the way up to chapter 8, verse 16. Yet I do, if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I'm not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Verse 18, I'm the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Verse 26, I have many things to say to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world. Those things which I heard from him, verse 29, and he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. And then the verse 42 Jesus said to them, If God were were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. And then you're here in verse 4 of chapter 9, I must work the works of him who sent me. That's a lot of sending. You think Jesus wants us to know something here? You're catching on to the theme? The man was sent to the pool called sent by Jesus, the one sent by the Father. Isn't it interesting, too, that those who lived in spiritual darkness and now see are the sent ones? Interesting, right? But the man went, and he went obediently, and he came back seeing. Now, at this point, there isn't much difference between this man and the lame man in chapter 5. Because after all, he also obeyed the words of the Lord, right? He picked up his mat. He walked. So what makes this account different. Well, let's continue on. Here you see the neighbor's challenge to what has taken place. Look at verse 8. 
Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this he who sat and begged? Now, the word blind there is actually the word a beggar. So in the oldest manuscripts, that's what it says. But the point is clear. People are confused. Why are they confused? Because he used to sit and beg? No, because the condition of the beggar has drastically changed. So much so, they're, they're actually confused. In fact, look at this. Um, they, they find it easier to believe that this must be a case of mistaken identity rather than a miracle. Look at verse 9. Some said, oh, this is he. And the others said, he's like him. Right? They, they, can't, they can't figure this out. He's so uh, different. He seems similar. Uh, he's kind of like him. No, some say, no, he is him. Well, look at the man's own confession. He said, I am he. So there it is. He puts the confusion to rest. Why all this confusion? Well, one simple thing. He can see. <laughs> the man has been blind since birth. And look what they say in verse 10. Therefore they said to him, how are your eyes opened? So there it comes out. They know that he was blind. They can't figure out how it, he could see now. And so the man just simply gives a brief recap. And I think there's a lot to this. Listen, he answered and said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and I received sight. That's it. That's his gospel explanation. This is how he led me to this. The man told me to do this. I did it. Now I see. Isn't it interesting? He wasn't told to go and do 25 uh, Hail Marys and uh, inflict some sort of pain upon themselves uh, and to, uh, you know, abstain from certain things for 30 days. He wasn't told to go make a, a, a pilgrimage to, to Mecca. No. Jesus said, go and wash. And the man said, this is all he told me to do, to go, to wash. Very simply, Jesus gives the man an opportunity to see. He gives him an opportunity to believe by obeying. Just obey. And the man winds up seeing. So the people are confused. In verse 12, they say to him, where, where is he then? Right? I'm certainly want to ask this Jesus some questions. And he said, I do not know. Jesus mysteriously disappears from the narrative and does not reappear again until verse 35. But this account illustrates the salvation process, and I think it does it so beautifully. We're blinded by sin. And as poor blind beggars, we are unable to save ourselves. We need a Savior, but we're blind. We cannot recognize our Savior or find Him on our own. The blind man would still be blind had Jesus not come to him and revealed himself to him. It is the same with salvation. If God did not come to us in our pitiful state and reveal himself to us, no one would be saved. And just like the man's obedience to the command of Jesus to wash in the pool, so it is with us. When we humbly bow the knee to Jesus and obediently follow him, we embrace him in all the truth of the gospel. Beautiful illustration 
of salvation. But this account does not stop here. This is merely the incident. Next week, the Pharisees, the spiritually blind, the unbelievers, will investigate this incident and we'll see how that ends up. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this day, for your word, for the dramatic demonstration of your power and the demonstration of how salvation comes to each and every one of us. Spiritually blind, we cannot save ourselves. We're unable to do so. We're groveling around in the dark, unable to find you, unable to find truth. But like the blind man, you approached him, you approached us. You came to us and shed the light of the gospel upon our blinded hearts and minds, and we're able to see truth, able to accept truth. And God, we're grateful for that. Grateful for the obedience displayed by this man, and Lord, I pray for us that we would continue to be obedient to you. As faithful servants of you, you called us to do so, to serve you, and just like you, to do the will of the Father because it's day, and our time is short. Your time was short there as well. In, in just a few, few months from then, you would be hanging on a cross. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be vigilant, help us to be active in the work you've called us to do. But Lord, help us to also be those lights you've called us to be, that the light of the gospel might shine on blind eyes and hearts in this world who so desperately need the light of life. Thank you for your word today. Thank you for the opportunity to bless you and praise you through song and worship today. Be honored in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.